Hi, Steve Barsh from Dream Adventures, one of the managing partners streaming today from Philadelphia. We have another exciting show to you today. Welcome to Dream It Live. Every day we work with and invest in great early stage startups, but these days we're spending a lot of time sharing ideas and advice from some of the best in the business with a focus on how to survive and thrive during these really challenging times. Um, okay, let me introduce our guest today. We have three great guests who made time out of their day for us, which is greatly appreciated. We have Jim Marshall. Jim is from Silicon Valley Bank in the Bay Area. He's a banker um, on the front lines of all of this, and he's been at Silicon Valley Bank since 2012 and been part of the startup ecosystem in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. We have Catherine Hickey, and Catherine, I hope I pronounced this correctly, from Palero Maza in Washington, D.C. She's uh, been an attorney for about 12 years, and she's working very closely these days with a lot of startups and in and around the NVCA, the National Venture Capital Association, around affiliation rules. And we'll, we'll talk to Catherine about that. Duncan Davidson joins us. He was on last week. Thanks for being on again, Duncan, from Bullpen Capital, also out in the Bay Area. Jim's out in the Bay Area, too. Um, Duncan's a serial entrepreneur. He's built several billion-dollar companies, and these days he spends more time as a venture investor at Bullpen Capital focused on B2B and B2C startups that are pre-Series A. Let me frame today's conversation quickly, and then we'll get to our panel of experts that are really going to, who are on the front line dealing with this almost minute by minute these days. So hopefully we can fill the audience in on what's going on. So the way I look at this, and this is my opinion, and we'll, we'll pull everybody else in, a lot of what's going on. So number one, startups are scrambling, trying to get this Paycheck Protection uh, Program funding, the PPP funding. Most banks, have, as of last Friday, companies had to have an existing loan or line of credit. Some of, them, some of the banks said, well, that's because we have these rules, know your customer, and any money laundering, AML, and KYC rules. Some people have said maybe banks were doing that because they want to make sure their loans are repaid first. So there's a little bit of an issue with that. It'll be interesting to talk about that today. And there's tons of confusion and a lot of pissed off companies out there. Over the weekend, banks like B of A seem to relax those rules about depository clients. And some banks are apparently you know, taking in customers who have no previous relationship. And some banks, I, I read this morning, and Jim will pull you into this in a minute, Wells Fargo apparently stopped lending. They're done um, in the PPP program, not because of PPP, but other issues. So anyway, and SVB we'll talk about, I think is going to open later today. Last thing, just in my intro, affiliation rules. So there's been a lot of things that people have been trying to change, that if you have less than 500 employees, but it still seems like there's a lot of confusion if you're a venture-backed startup and you've got VCs, and we'll particularly talk with Catherine and then weave in uh, Duncan on those issues around affiliation. There was even an interesting TechCrunch article over the weekend. Most startups are still excluded due to affiliation rules. We'll weave that in. Jim, you can only be on with us till 10.30 Eastern or Pacific. I know you have a lot going on. Thanks for making any time today. Um, so we'd love to start with you. What's the latest? What's going on at Silicon Valley Bank and banking in general with PPP? Thanks so much, Steve. Let, let me just uh, step back a bit. We, we've come out and um, our executive team has said, we have three priorities. We're gonna support our employees and clients through this crisis first. We're gonna lead with empathy and we're gonna adapt to rapid changes because this is all new territory for us. Um, it's interesting, we haven't done an SBA loan in 25 years. Wow. But, we, but we've in less than a week, Put a team of 200 people together and have developed a new process to first start with um, an expression of interest site, but really to operationalize this through a full digital new process that we um, plan to go live with later this afternoon. So this has been a Herculean effort 
to get this going. Um, and I want to step back a little bit. Before this even happened, we, again, trying to lead with empathy, came out with our venture debt principal deferral program that mm -hmm. we announced last week, right. which was really aimed to be provide simple and immediate relief to our borrowing clients. Um, so this is across the whole portfolio. Any of our clients with loans less than $10 million um, would be eligible to defer making principal payments for six months. Wow. So this is about 1,200 companies. Um, we've already had 800 sign up to take advantage of this. This is a very simple one-page loan amendment agreement uh, all through DocuSign, and we'll be doing that through April 24th. So um, again, in a way to, and we have other programs coming for other segments of our business, but that was one thing we did immediately outside of the SBA and and everything else um, to try to to try to help our clients. That, um, that's I just want to comment quickly. That's nice of you to give them six months right out of the gate. And and why wouldn't they all ask? I guess if I was the venture investor, I'd be like, of course, if they're giving you six months, take it because you could use the breathing room. That's very nice of you guys to do. Yeah, and we expect them all to take it. Again, it's about twelve hundred clients that qualify for this. Again, there's mm -hmm. certain parameters, but um, and we, we expect them to all do that again through April 24th. So this is, we have several initiatives and programs coming up. Some, uh, like I said, are brand new that we're implementing and we're learning as we go here, but trying to be as responsive uh, as we can. Okay, that's great. What, so what are your thoughts? When do you think most FDIC banks are going to start accepting applications? Do you have a view? I know, I know you work at SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, the bank of startups. But do you have a feel? Do you think of the next day or two, or or are they now? I I really I really don't know. I think we saw a few banks kind of rush in to try to meet the Friday deadline, mm -hmm. and there was some mixed feedback on that reaction. And we took a little bit of heat publicly for not being open on Friday to take mm -hmm. applications. But we wanted to be really clear on what we could do, what the parameters of the program were, and uh, to make sure we can we can satisfy the demand. So we've had about eight thousand companies um, express interest participating in this program. Mm -hmm. um, and we think we're going to, once we go live and process, who knows, it could be up to 10,000, 12,000 companies that that uh, apply for this, just okay, at SBB. I, okay. And, and Duncan, can I ask, do you have a feel, how many companies are in your portfolio and about how many of them have applied at this point? Do you have a feel yet by chance? We've asked them all to track give us their feedback. We're getting that mm -hmm. mostly today and tomorrow. So I don't quite right. know statistically yet. We've also counseled them. So first of all, mm -hmm. I want to do a shout out to Jim and SVB. You guys are fantastic. Yeah. You really do serve the venture community well, and I applaud you for all that you've done. Most of the other banks are a, I won't quite use the wrong word, but a, a stuff show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's how they're handling this. What we also advise our companies, though, and this is an important thing just to note, is maybe you could get this loan, but you have to think of the broader societal and moral implications of asking. A lot of the companies can get through the COVID chasm without asking for this, and they might view it as free money, but they should really understand this is meant to keep your payrolls higher and not just give you a free bridge loan through the back door. So we have counseled them to have some sense before they run out and ask for this, do they really need it or not? Okay. And Catherine, same thing. Do you have a feel, like, can you give us an idea of how many startups you're talking to or dealing with today? And do you have any feel for how they're doing on applying to their banks and if those banks are now open for this? 
Yes. Um, And so first of all, Duncan, I have to say, I really uh, applaud you and bullpen for sending that message, because I do think that it was, it's something that companies I think are focusing on more now that there's been a little more emphasis on the necessity piece for this loan. Um, But at first I do think that that was, you know, this is a very attractive loan. And and so a lot of people want a piece of it. Um, What we're seeing, and we've been working with a lot of companies, we've been working with funds as well as individual companies that are looking to apply. What we've heard is most banks, I think, are opening today. A few did Mm -hmm. roll out on Friday, I think, with mixed success. Um, And uh, so, you know, we've been hearing from our companies that they are starting to be able to submit applications um, as early as, I think, 9 a.m. this morning in some cases, and and others are rolling out kind of mid-afternoon. Um, frankly, I think that, you know, even getting things launched today was still hugely successful given the lateness of the guidance, um, that came out end of last week and even mm-hmm. over the weekend about the program. So, um, I, I think that we are probably through the end of today and into tomorrow going to see the kinks being worked out of the system and, and hopefully, uh, the applications starting to be processed. Okay. All right. Cool. Sounds good. Um, Jim, what are you guys concerned for the people that you're working with? What's needed to get the application approved as quickly as possible? I mean, and I guess there's kind of a standard application. Is there anything that you're particularly worried about that startups should be focusing on to make sure they have the documentation? Yeah, I have my payroll report, but anything in particular you're, you're worried about? Well, we're trying to come up uh, in our process with the required things that we think our clients and our clients, again, are are clients in the innovation economy, right? These are Mm -hmm. early stage tech and life science companies, um, just specific to them around ownership and some of the, some of the characteristics that would be more applicable to them to make sure Mm -hmm. they address that early in the application process. So we're trying to make it as targeted as we can, but I don't have, I don't have any more kind of insight along that, Steve, at this point, this is still time. That's fine. When, what, do you see, and maybe I'll open this up also for Duncan and Catherine, and you can certainly chime in whenever you'd like. Do you worry or, or are you seeing mistakes being made in applications that are going on now? Or you're talking with clients and they send you, you're like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. That's, that's a mistake. Anything that any of you are seeing right now, again, it's still kind of early. People tried Friday. They're trying. SVB is opening this afternoon. But any mistakes any of the three of you are, are hearing or seeing or worried about? Duncan, anything? Uh, let, let me yeah. comment. Uh, sure. Our quickest off the dime was in Cincinnati. Went to a local SBA approved bank. Did not mm-hmm. go through the majors. Bam, they got in right away and it seemed to work. So just. A, 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 a worked. Approved? Like, well, was it approved and they got the funds or what do you have? just the got the application. Yet. They got okay. the application in really quickly. There was no problem. And the bank seemed to be on top of all the rules. So the advice the bank was giving back to them was quite consistent with what, for example, the NBCA has been telling us, I think through mm-hmm. Catherine, as well mm-hmm. as through Cooley. The, the second thing we've noticed is that the bigger the bank, the worse it is. So we have mm-hmm. one company that applied this morning and JP Morgan came back and asked them to attest to something, which is totally nonsense. Like if any of, your other, any of your VCs had other people apply for SBA loans, well, they're all doing it. So how can you ask this question? It's like, that's not fair. Duh. So and that's not what they're getting at, but the question is poorly framed. So we've also seen some other places like Chase seem to open up and then crash. There's mm-hmm. just been a lot of problems. But the way I say it is, the bigger the bank, the probably the worst experience 
all the mm -hmm. way down the line. Um, besides SVB, First Republic's doing a fair amount of this. They first said they weren't going to do it, then they said they were. They're now accepting applications. So I guess the experience is right now, today, most of our companies who want to apply are going to hit the, um, <laughs> the systems, and we'll see what the feedback is. I will say that SVB's the way they've been dealing with this is spot on. And okay. the people are, we have a lot of SVB customers and they are enjoying the process as opposed to scared of it. So right. again, Jim, shout out to what you've yeah. done there. Yeah, Thanks, and Doug. And if, if, if I just may add something, I mean, yeah, uh, the, one of the biggest challenges and questions I'm getting, if we're not an SVB customer, can they mm -hmm. still qualify under the PPP? And that's a tough one. I mean, you have to be a client in order to, mm -hmm. to, to qualify, because to, we have to go through the KYC in that process. The, um, know, know, your, know your customer, right? The, know the your, legal requirements, know your customer. Know your customer, but we're getting a, a, a really large um, increase in interest of non-clients who want mm -hmm. to participate in this program asking to come over and open up accounts, which we're trying to, we're trying to handle and we're trying to accommodate, mm -hmm. but we have to focus on existing clients first, which Sure. I, I'm sure you can all understand. So anyway, it, it was interesting over the weekend. I was communicating with one of our Dreamit portfolio companies and they said they were a Bank of America customer that had quite the kerfuffle on Friday. <laughs> and on their B of A, they they said, we've been a customer of yours for 20 years. We've got well over the over time, 20 years. We have five million dollars and we can't get money from you. And they said, no, they actually went to a different community bank and the community bank approved them and said, we'll go ahead and do it. Brand new relationship. I don't know how they got around the KYC. Of course, B of A came back to them over the weekend and Sunday and said, we changed the requirements. Don't worry about it. And the Dream It company is like, that's okay. We're done here. Right. Uh, we're, we're, we're totally done here. But anyway, Catherine, again, the, the question is mistakes being made on applications or things that you're hearing from the field around the banking, because we're going to the first half of the show, we're just going to talk on the banking side, things that you're hearing and saying. Right. So at this point in the process, we are getting a lot of questions focused on the application itself and specifically how to respond to some of these uh, items where on their face, they seem like they should be simple. But then once you think about it a little bit more in the context of how some of these companies' ownership structures are set up, it, there's a little bit room of room for interpretation. And so we've mm -hmm. actually been been working um, with the NBCA to try to put together some consistent guidance on the best way that we think to approach some of these questions. The most fundamental being, we have to list every owner of 20%, more than 20% of your company. Mm -hmm. So the questions we're getting is, well, what does that mean? Is that just the current issued and outstanding equity? Do we do it on a fully diluted basis? Um, All right. There's no, there's no instruction uh, for the application that tells you which to do one way or the other. Um, and so, frankly, the guidance that we're giving is pick a method, make it clear which you're using and be consistent um, because there's no indication that you have to pick one or the other. Uh, kind of similarly, you know, we've gotten questions around whether um, related funds, need, like a, if you have an investor who comes in through fund one and, and fund two, yeah. technically they're different record owners. Um, if each of them owns 15%, do we need to list them in the aggregate as a 20% owner of the company? And the advice that I think is probably the best approach to take there is, whereas technically the form does not necessarily require them to be listed, because you are going to have to take into consideration the affiliation between those funds and whether or not that impacts 
the applicant's eligibility, and you're going to have to address that later in the form, it's best to treat them as aggregated and make sure that it's very clear that, you know, for purposes of the, the common ownership, we're going to aggregate those related funds. And to the extent they collectively own more than 20 percent, we'll list them in the schedule. So those are the sorts of things we're getting a lot of inquiries about. And I understand why, because people want to get this right. And is the best way to find those answers is, is the NVCA website reaching out to you guys and your firm, but where I'm a startup, where can I get the most authoritative information these days? Are you finding? Well, you can certainly reach out to um, your legal counsel because if they are at all spun up on the CARES Act, they probably have some sense of this. NVCA's right. um, official recommendations on this, I think, should be coming out at some point later today. And then also have them reach out to their lender as well, because ultimately, regardless of what we say, the lender processing your application may have their own view of how it should be completed. So make sure mm -hmm. that, that what you're giving them is consistent with their expectations. Is By the way, for the piece from the NVCA, is that you, I guess it was an Aaron from Cooley, wrote the first piece a few days ago. Are the both of you co-authoring that? That was terrific. It was incredibly helpful for funds. This last one, I think, is not going to have a byline at all because it's all right. been a, a very collaborative effort among um, cool. many lawyers, uh, Cooley, Palermaza, and, and several other firms as well, Goodwin. So it's um, this one's a team effort. Okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let me, let me do, I'm sorry, go ahead, Duncan. I just want to add, a lot of our companies, not a lot, some of our companies have a different bank for checking account deposits and mm -hmm. a different as for, as for the venture loan. And there's some venture lenders like WTI, Western Technology, that are very common across the venture community, but they're not a bank and they're not participating right. in the program. Now, Maurice, the guy who runs it, has told us he encourages all his companies to go through the program if they qualify and he will be supportive. We've had another bank that's encouraged the particular entity to go to one of the top SBA lenders, in this case, a company called NewTek. I think it's number two in SBA, versus going through the B of A, Wells Fargo, whatever problem set. So you have basically a choice. If you have a venture lender who's not your deposit bank, you could still go through a process through them. And apparently the SBA entities, the banks, are approving like community banks are approving without the detailed KYC that maybe a B of A would go through. Got it. Got it. Um, okay. Let me keep going on the banking side because we have Jim for about 10 more minutes. We are going to get you on your team meeting on time, I promise. And again, I appreciate you making the time. These are three people that are extremely busy. Dream, it's busy too. So we appreciate you giving us time uh, today to talk about this important issue for startups. So I wanted on the banking side, um, Maybe Jim will focus on you. Back to you for a minute. Timeline for when loans should be processed. Like, what is SVB? You know, I'm a startup. You know, and by the way, full disclaimer: SVB is the bank for Dream Adventures as well as as many many venture firms. Um, but what's the timeline for when a loan should be processed? So, if I apply today on SVB, what's that timeline look like? Steve, I wish I knew and could tell you that. I really don't. I am not. Um... Okay. I am not part of our 200 person task force. And again, this is happening in real time. Sure. We're, we're going to do our best to, to process this. Um, I think we have, what didn't the government say it's up to June 30 to actually process and fund these loans, which I, I know is not, um, hopefully we'll get, we'll, we'll be through most of these by then, but I do not have a timeline. So I'm, I'm so sorry, I can't. 
Quick question. Uh, Catherine, I saw you nodding. Is that correct? June 30th is when the banks have until? Yes. Is that correct? Okay. Technically, so have- yes. I, I mean, we're anticipating, and Jim, let me know if, if this is off the mark, that the, the actual processing will be much faster. But the, the program, the loan program is going to be open through June 30th. So companies should be able to apply, assuming funds are still available, through the end of that term. Got it. Okay, so, but Jim, just back to you for a minute. I know you don't know, um, but could you give us a, a hint, just an expectation? So let's say I apply to SVB or, or any of the other banks, and I know you particularly can't speak for other people, is are we looking, so let's say I get my application in today, and I know your website's going to be way overloaded. Are we measuring in hours, days, weeks, months? Do you think I can you, apply I, today? I, yeah, and if you have no idea, it's fine. I, we, we're going to let the whole world know as soon as we know. <laughs> so, so we and it's, we don't know that yet, Steve. I'm so just sorry. it's it's follow at SVB Financial or like at SVB Help, right? If your t- Twitter is going to be the best channel, I would assume, and and you'll be emailing yes. your customers. Yeah, as well. we have a okay. site now that's uh, and I can I can maybe share the link on here of the our our PPP application page. Okay, and I think coming. I think Dustin has a screenshot of it if you want to pull okay. it up. But yeah, I think of the SVB page. Okay, cool. Um, let's keep going. So. Once it's processed, then then do you let me ask Catherine and Duncan, do you have any feel like what are you what are your startups? There it is. There's what the, the application process on SVB. Yeah. Do you have yeah. a feel when, you know, because and Duncan, you have this great expression, default alive. You know, make sure you're in default alive mode, that you're you're keeping your your startup that burn rate down. Do you guys have expectations for for Catherine or Duncan when startups should be receiving these funds? You know, it's the classic, you know, the deal's not done until the, the money is in your bank account. Um any thoughts or expectations you have? Well, I, I'm probably the furthest from this, from a banker and a lawyer helping NVCA. But you know, the, the plan was almost the same day funding once they get their act together. In other words, the loan should be quick. Mm-hmm. And particularly, I hope with SVB, if you already have an SVB venture loan, it should be easy for them to top it off uh, once the back end of the program works. So we're dealing with government time, so who knows? But I think it's okay. supposed to be when they get their act together a very quick uh, result. There's no, there, there's nobody in the background reviewing this. Nobody's going through your form and reviewing this. And you're, this is very important to understand. You, you as a company are self-attesting to the accuracy of the application. Mm-hmm. You're self-attesting to affiliation and some of the other things in there. And of course, you get in trouble if you're not honest about it. But there's nobody behind you, no hordes of bureaucrats sitting back to review your application, which is kind of interesting. They're trying to get the money out quickly. Is the point. Okay. Catherine, any yeah. thoughts on that? That's consistent with our expectations is we, the whole program has been designed to move as quickly as possible. So to Duncan's point, they're not requiring that the SBA send investigators in to examine each applicant's uh, application and eligibility and make a finding as to your affiliation. They're not doing that. Instead, they're putting the burden on the applicant, which means you have to be good that you have done your diligence, you know, be confident in that and make sure that you're not uh, acting recklessly and disregarding Mm -hmm. the rules when you submit your application, because ultimately, if there are issues, it's going to fall back on you. But the benefit of that is that it means the lenders can process these really quickly. Uh, The application is a one and a half page form, two page form. It's very simple. Check the box. And um, once the approval is is processed, which should be relatively simple, we're anticipating the funds are going to be available uh, again virtually same day. 
Um, we'll have to see if that plays out that way, but I think that's the intent here. Okay. All right. Thank you, Jim. We have five minutes left with you. I are going to be on time. <laughs> um, let me transition to some questions that, that have been asked already. They're going to come up on the screen. I'll read them to you too. It should come up on the bottom third if Dustin's ready. And then we're going to, you're going to drop off in about five minutes and we'll keep going with our other two guests and we're going to transition more into affiliation. And by the way, there's one question that came up for Duncan that was a banking question, but we'll, we'll pull it in later. All right. So um, first question that came up for Jim, do you think banks will run out of funds? Um, <laughs> and then what happens? It's a good question. I mean, each bank has to really look at their liquidity position and ability to fund this um, fund these loans. Mm -hmm. We, uh, I, I think, we're in the process of doing that analysis. We don't have any firm data about what our bucket is for this, but right. um, obviously, the larger the bank, the um, the more cap capability here. But um, okay. but that's an issue for sure. It's what's 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 the capability for these for these banks? Got it. Okay. Terrific. Steve, Steve I just, yeah. can I comment yeah, for please. a second? Absolutely. Last week, there was a problem in the banking community, and some of the big banks had these calls about it, where this $350 billion, and if they had more, it might be $500 billion. We're, you know, a billion here, a billion there, we're eventually talking real money. They were worried <laughs> that it would affect their bank lending uh, practice, and they would become insolvent or violate bank rules. Mm -hmm. Apparently last week, and maybe Jim knows about this, I don't know, but apparently last week there was a, an important waiver given to the banks, and that's when they began to open their portals. Because this is supposed to work where the U.S. government guarantees these loans, so the banks are not really on the hook here as long as it doesn't affect their, their bank uh, capital requirements right. and all. Right, but I believe that's why Wells Fargo shut down. They were exceeding that requirement and they turned it off last night or something is what I've heard. Let, let me keep going. Two more. We have two more questions for, for Jim and then three minutes left to get him out. Jim, next question that was up. Um, how do I find out if my bank is an SBA approved lender? So they need to be FDIC, but I guess this question was everything's like an SBA approved bank. Like, is there a magic box or, or how do I get that answer? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Most banks have COVID and PPA communication on their websites now. All right. So I, I would just do, you know, reach out to your relationship manager at whatever bank you're at to figure out if you're participating or, or do a search online. Okay. Um, yeah, I can, I can know, jump Catherine? in. Yeah, please. Yeah, there, so there's a list of SBA approved lenders that is not uh, fully up to date, but that's available on SBA.gov. Um, smaller regional websites will have, I think, more up to date lists. But it's important to note that the, the Paycheck Protection Loan Program is not limited just to SBA approved lenders. They've expanded eligibility so that other lenders can participate in oh, just really? the program, even if they're not, quote, SBA approved. That's part of the CARES Act legislation. Oh, I, okay. I didn't know that. I thought the CARES Act legislation said um, you had to be SBA. Okay. Last question. And then, Jim, we're going to get you off in time. Um, the next question, it's a little bit long, but let me read it to you. Should we be applying to multiple banks and hope one of them comes through? We're a Wells Fargo customer and quote unquote expressed interest over the weekend before they removed the interest link at the $10 billion cap. So again, simplify the question. Should I apply to more than one bank when I'm doing this? Jim, thoughts? I mean, that's up to you. And, and I would I would seek counsel, uh, seek guidance from counsel. You may want to hedge a bit, but I, I think you, you want to focus where you have your primary DDA relationship. Um, What's a DDA? DDA? Uh, I'm sorry, your primary checking account relationship. Direct, your direct primary deposit account. 
direct, yeah, your primary checking account relationship. Start there. If that bank is not doing these types of loans, then move to whatever one you think where you have a relationship that makes sense. Um, and and I that's that's what I would uh, would recommend. But I'm sure um, Duncan and Catherine have a yeah, we've been advising clients um, to only apply, only submit one application at a time. There is a requirement under the CARES Act that you uh, that you essentially, when you apply, certify that you do not have another application pending under the ah. same program for the same purpose. So we read that as to say, this is not permitted under the CARES Act. Submit one application at a time um, to make sure that you're not going to be in technical violation of that. Okay. Yeah, I strongly yeah. agree with that because I think if you apply twice, you're going to get tossed out of both. Yeah. Got it. So, okay. a wait, one question is, what are you recommending for the EIDL? Are you recommending everyone do, to do that as well, or how are you? No. So, you are permitted to have an EIDL. That's an economic injury disaster loan application pending at the same time that you have a paycheck protection loan application pending. Um, one thing, though, when you get into the whole question of whether you can refinance the EIDL into a PPL, there is a provision in the PPL that permits that, but it technically only applies for EIDLs that you had before paycheck protection loans became available. So you can still apply for both, but you can only refinance the pre-existing EIDLs. So just keep that in mind. Okay, good to know. Jim, it's 10.30 in the morning Pacific time. We want to make you on time for your team call. If that's okay, I mean, you're welcome to stay if you have time, but we just I, want to be respectful. So thank you. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Sorry, I have to run, but Duncan Duncan knows more about banking than most bankers do anyway. So he can, <laughs> you're, you're in good hands. With, take care. Take thank care, you guys. for joining us, Jim. We'll talk to you later. We'll keep thank going you. with our two guests again. Thanks for tuning in today. It's an update on the CARES Act and what's going on with the PPP. And we're going to focus now and move a little bit more towards affiliation issue. So confusing. Friday was confusing. The weekend was more confusing. Where are we now? Let me just tell you the last thing I heard, but I'm a lay person, right? So here's the last thing I heard. I'm just going to read a statement I read over the weekend or got over the weekend. The SBA will deem a minority shareholder to be in control if that individual or entity has the ability under the concerns charter, bylaws, or shareholder agreement to prevent a, prevent a quorum or otherwise black, block action by the board of directors or shareholders. What the heck is the last, the latest on affiliation rules, Catherine, for VC-backed startups? So that, the statement you just read is, is the current state of play. That is an, an accurate statement. But the question, the $10 million question is, what does that mean? Um, that is the standard for affiliation under the uh, business loan uh, pro the SBA business loan affiliation rules, which is slightly different from the affiliation rules that they apply for federal contract procurement. Mm -hmm. um, what it means for our purposes here for determining eligibility for the loan, the loan eligibility is based on essentially your the number of employees of the applicant company. Um, and you have to have fewer than 500 US resident employees under mm -hmm. the current um, requirements with, with some exceptions. If you have a higher employee threshold under the NAICS code for your industry, that's the North American Industry Classification System, then you can rely on that higher threshold. And some of those go up to as many as um, the 1,250 employees. So that can be significant if it applies for your industry. Um, but otherwise, you have to be under the 500, which means if you are the applicant 
affiliated with any other company, which can include, in some instances, uh, your investor owners, as well as any of the other companies that those investors also control under the affiliation rules. So essentially, the fund and other portfolio companies where they have similar control rights you would need to aggregate your employees with the employees of all of your affiliated companies for purposes of determining whether or not you're under the 500 employee limit. That's why it matters, because you can see how if you're deemed affiliated with a whole family of portfolio companies, everyone's blown out of the water. There's no chance you're going to meet that. Right. So the standard that we've applied, so you will be affiliated with any owner of more than 50% of the equity of the company. That's a, a pretty as close as we get to a bright line test in this as as anywhere. So that's a concern <laughs> primarily for private equity backed companies where they may have a majority ownership stake. For venture capital companies where the investments are more likely to be minority stakes, then you look at those blocking rights, the ability to block a quorum or to prevent um, a shareholder or board action. And where that really becomes concerning from an affiliation perspective is not if there's a general right of, for example, preferred stockholders voting together as a class to approve certain actions. Um, because in that, if in that case, no single stockholder controls the vote of the majority, then no, the, the flip side of that is no single stockholder has a blocking right or a veto right, which means that you can take that action with different combinations of people approving it. So it's not going to be problematic for affiliation with a specific investor. The rights that we have to worry about, what we call negative covenants or, or blocking rights, are ones that pertain not to extraordinary actions, because those are permissible, but mm -hmm. to decisions that relate more to the day-to-day -day operations of the company. And when those decisions are subject to a veto right or a blocking right that is controlled by one specific investor or, you know, a fund that that invests through multiple funds, but for all intents and purposes is the same investor. Um, and that could be either through shareholder voting rights that are set at a, a supermajority percentage that by default gives that investor a block. Or at the board level, if, for example, you have certain decisions that um, must be approved by the board, including the consent of each preferred director, if each preferred director has a veto right over that decision, then the investor who has the appointment right, for example, for that director would be deemed to have control and therefore be affiliated. Wow. Okay. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, many of us at Dream It are serial entrepreneurs as well. I remember signing my stock purchase agreements and all my covenants and everything else. And, you know, if you want to write a check for greater than $50,000 or you're signing a lease for greater than $50,000, you need the permission of X. But you're saying, like, if it's not an individual firm, it's not going to be an issue that I have to deal with these uh, the affiliation rule. It's just you need board permission. That, that, that amalgamation doesn't count. I hope I'm not asking a confusing question if you understood my question. I do understand your question. And I think it's an important point that the the existence, there's a multi-factor level of inquiry here. First is, are there any um, approval rights, investor protective provisions that require special preferred votes or preferred director votes in order for those actions to be approved? You know, mm -hmm. if yes, then we analyze the substance of the rights themselves. Certain actions you're allowed to have 
negative control over without it triggering affiliation because the SBA understands that they essentially protect the value of the investment. These Mm -hmm. usually extend to extraordinary actions. So for example, approving a sale of the company, approving a bankruptcy or a dissolution, approving the creation of a new class of stock or the admission of a new stockholder or the reclassification of stock. Those are all things that the SBA has pretty clearly held are permissible Even if one investor has a block, it's not going to trigger affiliation. Then you get into the the less clear area, which is um, rights like the one that you mentioned, uh, approval rights over the company incurring debt in excess of X dollars. Or one that is really key and causing a lot of heartburn for investors here is the ability to approve um, the declaration or payment of a dividend. Uh, which the SBA has held is too close to controlling day-to-day operations. And if one investor has a block over that is likely to create affiliation. Again, it's, there's a sliding scale and a balancing test that the SBA applies, but we're going, these rights that we've identified as problematic are ones where there is case law where um, the SBA has held and uh, Office of Hearings and Appeals has affirmed that they rise too far to the level of creating um, control over day-to-day operations and therefore results in affiliation. So if you have those problematic covenants in place, then the last step of the analysis is, is the blocking right there, is the veto right controlled by a single investor? Um, mm-hmm. Because my the point that I was making is, if it's just subject to the approval of a majority of the preferred stockholders, and no single stockholder owns more than 50% of that, uh, that group of securities voting together as a class, then no single investor has a veto, so you won't be affiliated with any one of those investors. Okay. If Can you know, I- if you had a, a supermajority where it's required 75% approval and you have one fund that owns 30% of the company, then they have a block. Okay, let me let me Duncan. I want to ask you a question. I, I've, I'm thinking of the workaround. I'd come up with this as an investor. You're both an investor and an attorney and an entrepreneur. You know, I'd sit there and think, oh, cool. I know what we're going to do. We're going to amend the shareholder agreement. Let's instantly get, go and DocuSign, draft a one-page amendment, and let's blow those rules out of the water for five seconds and submit. Would you? What do you think about that? Or what would you do in these situations? I'm interested in your reaction around affiliation. We've been asked over the last four days these questions. Um, okay. Catherine gave a very good, very precise answer that mm-hmm. may be a little bit in the weeds for a lot of people out there, but boy, <laughs> she's on top of this. And I think That's great. I'm looking forward That's to wild. the NBCA um, guidelines that might come out today. Right. Um, last week, Lowenstein out of New York came out with a really good analysis saying they think what's called Section 301 affiliation applies, not Section 103. Mm-hmm. And the guidance given by the SBA, I think late Friday night, maybe at midnight, agreed with that. So that was good. So we've been following mm-hmm. the Lowenstein viewpoint. And the early NVCA stuff, which came out last week, was consistent with it. And so what's come back to us are ma- basically three circumstances that we have agreed to and some we haven't. Circumstance one, the docs say a majority of preferred and the lead investor and investor X. Mm-hmm. Take that out. You can't have that because that is a right. specific investor block. Okay. So we would agree. So would you, real quick, would you say to your attorney, draft a one pager, put it in DocuSign, let's blow that out of the water right here, right now yes, for our do. shareholder agreement? But, but yes, we do. But we do it surgically. 
Somebody proposed, <laughs> why don't we do a blanket thing that anything against these general rules doesn't account? It doesn't work. I said, no, don't right. do that. It's totally confusing. Go right. read the corrective provisions. Go look at the certificate in Delaware. Go look at the docs and take out exactly when it says fund manager X can block, lead investor, whoever that is, can block. Mm -hmm. Take them out and go to majority vote. So we've agreed to that. We've had another one which had a weird 70% supermajority voting to handle all kinds of weird contingencies. And we said, just make sure that doesn't put one of the investors into a blocking position, lower that percent to where it works. And they did, and we agreed to that. And that's consistent with what Catherine's been saying. I'll make one other point. Mm -hmm. um, just so people don't get confused. When they talk about multiple funds have to be aggregated, what they're talking about is one fund manager. So sometimes a venture fund manager like Bullpen might have yeah. fund X and Y that invest together, or maybe later fund growth fund invest on top of an earlier investment. That's aggregated, one fund manager. But that's different than saying three or four venture funds with separate fund managers, just so nobody's confused. Aggregate well, one fund manager's portfolio of funds into the number, but don't go across different fund managers. Got it. Wait, let me let me restate that to make sure I understand that. You know, if we have Dream Adventures Fund One, Fund Two, Fund Three, and they're all Dream Adventures, right? Are they going to aggregate? Because I heard somebody this weekend saying we're going to be fine. We're on our Series B, but our Seed A and B, you know, they're all different funds from the same common investor. Is that and and Catherine, if you could chime in, I'm now I'm a little confused. I thought I understood. Do, does Dream It One, Two, and Three? Hey. Come on, bullshit. It's all, they're all they're different LLC names, but they're all dream it. You all, sorry, that all comes together as one. Is it, is it that way or are they separate entities for, for the 20% rule for affiliation? Yes. Yeah, so I agree with what Duncan was saying, which is they would all be considered one because they all are all part of the dream it family, the dream and common, dream it common manager, uh, despite the fact that there are different like pots of money in each fund, they all go back to dream it and they all share the, the same fund manager. Uh, but I think the point Duncan was making, which is important because uh, again, for completely unrelated funds that are managed separately, you don't have to aggregate all of them together just by virtue of the fact that, that they are fund investors, right? Is, Duncan, is that consistent with what you were saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I totally agree with that. And just to also kind of bounce off what Duncan was describing they've done for certain portfolio companies to try to amend the documents. That is consistent with what we've seen and what we've recommended. And we have gotten the question of, well, do we have to go through and figure out exactly which of our covenants are problematic? Can we just sign a blanket waiver that says, you know, if we have anything in our documents that is going to be impermissible and would create affiliation under the rules, then we waive it and we'll just sign that and then we're good. And I view that as problematic, number one, because, well, for the investor, you're giving up probably more than you need to. And also you don't know what you're giving up. And I think from just uh, trying to build that record of a good faith 
effort to understand the rules and what you can and can't do. If there's no evidence that anybody has actually examined the documents and understood what's in there and what they can't do, then how do you have any basis to say that you understand what actions you can't subject to an investor block in the future? And and what good is that waiver? So I do see a problem with that proposal. And I think that the, the surgical approach is better for the investor because you're only giving up as much as you need and also better for demonstrating to the lender and to the SBA that you've made a good faith effort to be compliant. Cool. All right, let, let's um, transition a little more towards Duncan. And then in about uh, three, four minutes, we're going to open up for a bunch of questions I have in front of me. Duncan, so how, just if you give us an update, you were on last week. It was great. How are conversations going with your startup? So, you know, other things that you're hearing about PP, PPP, uh, sorry, PPP loans and affiliation rules. Can you give us a little view? And again, can you give it, remind us in your portfolio about how many startups are in your portfolio, approximately active? Oh my gosh, probably 40 still okay. active. Okay. Some, so four, and, yeah. So and 40 so, active start. And it, what, what it, are you hearing? What's happening on affiliation it, it, and PPP loans? Yeah. To get to your question, um, People that run companies aren't lawyers. And when they talk to their outside counsel, they get hedged answers uh, as opposed to precise answers. Right. And even if the answer is precise, it sounds hedged. Well, it could be this, it could be that. And it drives them crazy. Mm -hmm. And they, they, then, they then try to get around that through two means. We talked about one, this blanket omnibus. Don't do that. It just creates more confusion, not less. It's even more confusing than nuanced lawyers. The other is sometimes there's a wink and a nod. Okay, we'll agree to this, but you're going to put it back in later. No, don't do that either. You have to be honest in the process, and you can't play a game like that. So do not agree to that. Do not do that. It's bad advice. But I think last week there was so much confusing advice, and even TechCrunch, and even I think the Axios has put out comments along the lines, most venture-backed companies don't meet the standards. That's simply wrong. Certainly the mm -hmm. early stage ones where the, mm -hmm. you don't have majority control by the outside investors, where the company still has more independence and common shareholders on the board than the venture side, you right. should be able to get through all this if you just clean up surgically a couple of these named investor individual veto rights. Got and it. so I think the confusion on that has been pretty profound and it's it's beginning to come to settle down to a dull roar right now. So I think another day or so, particularly if NVCA puts out the latest guidance, I think most of the companies will be more comfortable understanding whether they apply or don't apply and whether they're qualified or not. Okay, terrific. Um, thank you for that update. So um, let me, let me, I'm gonna transition to questions. We have about 10 minutes left. Let's get into some of the questions from the audience. Again, they'll come up on the screen as we go through them. Um, let me uh, roll through these in a minute. Here we go. Uh, first question is for Catherine. Um, how do I, I guess we were just talking about this. How do I amend my by bylaws or shareholder agreement? I guess maybe it's the process. Do I, do I talk to my board? Do I talk to my investors? When do I get my attorney involved? How do I do that? Well, I think that you have to have the conversation um, to make sure that your investors are comfortable with waiving whatever they need to in order to get this uh, accomplished. Uh, we have companies whose investors have said, no, like we're just not willing to make the change. We're sorry, you know, and in their mind, they've looked at the company and think that they're going to be able to weather the storm without making these concessions. Um, so that's a conversation that needs to happen. 
I would say consult with legal counsel sooner rather than later because they can help you, number one, identify where the affiliation risks are, if any. Um, as I think has become apparent in these conversations, it get it's very easy to get wrapped around the axle in these um, analyses. It's really nuanced. Um, and so I think getting somebody who can help you uh, trim the fat and focus on, in some cases, really just one or two rights that might be problematic. And, and that'll help everybody focus on exactly what the ask is for the amendment. Um, and then in terms of, of drafting, uh, it can be accomplished via a, an amendment to the document. Make sure mm -hmm. that you are achieving whatever um, approval requirements are required to affect the amendment. So it may be that there's one investor who's the named beneficiary of the right but if you can't amend the agreement without the consent of a majority of the investors, then you're, you're going to need to bring in other people to make that effective. It's all going to be document specific. Um, something else that we've seen parties consider is uh, rather than a full on amendment to have a waiver document that the investors would sign that effectively operates as an amendment, but it can be a little bit more streamlined from a documentation perspective. And uh, we have had some companies that consider uh, a limited duration waiver, um, which I think, you know, we've reached a conclusion that that may be legally sufficient. Uh, but again, the flip side of that coin is um, understanding, you know, whether optically everybody is comfortable with that, because we think these loans are going to be you know, publicly scrutinized and you want to make sure that you've gone into it with a good faith intent to, to really break the affiliation for purposes of eligibility, not only when you apply, but for at the very minimum, the entire duration of any potential loan. Okay, cool. Um, let me, Dustin, Duncan, excuse me, Dustin's producing, Duncan's on the show. Duncan, anything to add to that on, you know, amending bylaws or shareholder agreement? Are you good with that? Well, I understand the argument for the time-based waiver. Uh, I'm recommending to all my companies, don't do it. Mm -hmm. And because what will happen is if they get through this chasm and they then raise another round and it's post the loan, the next investor might figure out how to reimpose some of the things that were waived. You don't need to do it. And the investors shouldn't play a game here. I think Catherine is right. You, you don't want to look too clever. That's not what right. this is about. You Got should it. really be in need of this. You should view the fact that you're doing something for that's broader than just for you. It's, it's mm -hmm. you got to consider the whole society and the whole moral purpose of this. And cleverness is not useful in that context. Got it. Okay, let's move to our next question. It was uh, aimed towards Catherine, but maybe we'll both get a, a bite at it like that last one. Do you expect the affiliation rules to be amended this week? I mean, you're you're so close to it. It'd be great to get your opinion. Or do you expect or do you hope? <laughs> Either one. Uh, last week, there was a lot of hope in the venture community that there was going to be some relaxation of the affiliation rules, at least for purposes of the Paycheck Protection Loan Program. Mm -hmm. um, so everybody eagerly awaited the SBA guidance that came out at the end of the week. And then we read it. And unfortunately, realized that it didn't move the needle much, if at all, on the mm -hmm. affiliation rules. Um, it was it was essentially a reaffirmation of the rules that we understood to be in place before that happened. So at this point, I do not think it is very likely that that the affiliation rules are going to be relaxed. Is it impossible? Wow. 
No, but I think if that were going to happen, it likely would have happened in in the guidance that came out at the end of last week and over the weekend. So I think the SBA has kind of doubled down. They said, these are our standards. We're a program that's designed to help small businesses. There's no reason that different rules should apply in this context. Obviously, other than the exemptions from affiliation that are created by the CARES Act, which is, you know, a narrow subset. So I, I don't necessarily anticipate additional changes to those rules. And Duncan, let me know if, if you have any other thoughts on that. I don't Duncan? think it's necessary. I don't I don't think it's necessary. I think Catherine's right. The Friday night, midnight, whatever thing from the SBA is probably it. If, if a gift happens today, we all take it. But mm-hmm. I, I think most of these companies that really are in trouble can use Section 301 rules and guidelines the way Catherine outlined it and qualify. So further relief is probably not that necessary, except on the margin. Okay, terrific. All right, let's move to the next question. Uh, it's focused on Duncan. Duncan, if and I don't know if you, hopefully you see the questions popping up on the screen as well. If multiple VCs invested in a startup, do you find you're working together in a, within, a, within a startup with the other VCs to get these issues resolved? Is it you just talking to the founder, I guess, or or you're working with the other VCs that have co-invested in a startup? Is are you on the conversation on the phone with other investors? I guess. Yes, the investors are fairly aligned on this. They okay. uh, they're all trying to work together to get the company the money if the company's appropriately in need of it. All right. Oh, that's that's easy enough. Um, okay, let me just keep going. We have about mm, six or seven more questions. So let me just keep pounding through them. Um, this isn't directed towards anyone, uh, so it's an open question. It's a daily, audio daily double worth ten points. Now, Kieran Miller asks, "Will the SBA?" Okay, it's a little bit long. Let me read it. Should come up on the screen. Will the SBA increase the forgiven amount beyond the two point five times average payroll and other qualified expenses? If the company guarantees the additional amount will go towards new hires and agrees to be audited for that, who, uh, Catherine, you want to take that? Any thoughts if they're going to go past the two and a half rule? Well, calculation. so just to clarify, mm-hmm. the maximum amount of the loan is 2.5 times average payroll. Right. Um, so the forgiveness can't go beyond the maximum amount of the loan. But what I, what I think... Um, the question might have been getting at is because the the forgivable amount of the loan uh, could be up to the maximum, but it can be less depending on uh, how the funds were used. Um, The guidance has indicated that to the extent the funds are not put towards payroll costs, but are put towards other allowable uses. So you can use these funds to pay utilities, mortgage interest, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But to the extent you don't use it for payroll, it's going to potentially impact the amount that could be forgiven just based on the funds available. Um, I, I really do think the emphasis is going to be on uh, payroll costs. So there's a possibility, depending on how much is actually available to work with, that per, you the other allowable uses might be subject to forgiveness at some higher level than they've already indicated. But I, I believe the guidance right now has said, don't count on more than 25% of those other allowable uses to be forgivable. And then they, they can certainly change that depending on where things look uh, when it comes to process those forgiveness applications. Yeah, okay. can I, I'm gonna, I, I have a yeah. question for Catherine. I think it, I have to go in a second anyway, but this is something yeah. I try to figure out. The two and a half times month is really 11 weeks. You get 11 weeks of money and the payroll base you look at has 100K cap in it. 
four mm-hmm. people paid over a hundred. On the other hand, the forgiveness is over eight weeks of spending. Yeah. However, Catherine, I don't think they have the cap anymore. I think it's eight weeks of your real payroll plus rent utilities uh, versus 11 weeks of your adjusted downward payroll. Is that That's correct? correct. You I'm are correct that, that those are slightly different measurement periods. I don't have anything okay. else to say. Other well, than- and also, also, they don't apply the cap on the forgiveness side, just on the loan amount side. I think that's right. That's right. Yes. Okay, so the, this is a huge because uh, if you think about it, eight weeks, 11 weeks, will they ever get up to the full amount? Probably will, particularly if you do what we're say, saying to our companies. If you take the loan, hire back the furloughed employees you need. So you're actually trying to live up to the spirit of the SBA loan in, in the first place which is paycheck protection of individuals. And I think you will get almost two, if not two, the full forgiveness. Yeah, I think that's right, Duncan. And you mentioned, I, I do also want to emphasize to the extent people aren't aware that the loan forgiveness is subject to decrease if your workforce over the course of the loan, um, it de- so if you lay off workers or if you decrease salaries by more than 25%. So I think that really gets to exactly the intent of this is to encourage employers to the extent possible to use this money to keep your employees around and to continue paying them with, you know, consistent levels of salary. Because if you don't do that, it's just going to impact the amount of not your loan eligibility, but the forgiveness eligibility. Let's, um, okay, how about this? Let's wrap it up here. We're right at two o'clock. We've, we've burned an hour of your time today, um, which we greatly appreciate. Let me just say some closing words. Any other, uh, just while you're here and you have the platform, any other thoughts or remarks that we haven't talked about you think startups should know? Well, uh, well, first of all, I just have to say, I think it's really fantastic that organizations like Dreamit are trying to put this content out there because we know there are there's a lot of confusion. People are trying to get this right for the most part, um, but it's not necessarily the most intuitive process. So uh, I just want to you know, say thank you to you guys for doing this. No, thank you. And um, the other piece that I do want to echo uh, kind of consistent with what Duncan was saying is um, the attractiveness of this loan is very real. And I think a lot of people at the outset were focused on, you know, just how do I get this money? But it is really important if you are applying to make sure that you have a a true defensible case of the necessity of the funds. Um, Necessity is a requirement for eligibility. So that can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different businesses. Um, But it is something to focus on and, you know, make sure that at a board level, there has been at least a consideration of that point and a finding of necessity for the loan you're applying for. Okay. Terrific. And no, we appreciate being on. We know you're so wickedly busy right now. So we appreciate it. So let me just a couple of co- uh, closing comments. You know, every day at Dreamit, we work with and invest in great early stage startups. Today, we've been sharing great ideas and advice from some of the best in the business. Again, right now, we're focusing all of Dreamit um, for Dreamit Live on these challenging times and how can we help bring great content and great guests on and talk about that. So thank you again, Catherine. Just to wrap things up completely, if you have more questions, you know, you know, reach us at, read out, reach out to us on Twitter or on our comments. Check out the latest Dreamit doses on YouTube for great pragmatic techniques. They're about five to seven minutes each. They're topics we find startups make mistakes about again and again. So we record and create these Dreamit doses. Catch our upcoming and past Dreamit live episodes. You can go to dreamit.com slash live where you can sign up to get alerts. 
We'll have more coming out this week, and we really appreciate everybody's time. Thanks for watching, Catherine. Thanks for staying with us till the end. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye.